These are uncertain times, but Munson Savings Bank continues to grow and evolve, most recently by opening a new loan and operations center in Wilbraham and a new branch in East Longmeadow scheduled to open later this summer. At Munson Savings Bank, we believe in going above and beyond to create solutions for people, businesses, and our community. Hello. And welcome to Business Talk, presented by Business West and Living Local, and brought to you by Munson Savings Bank. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS, and here is your host for this episode of Business Talk. He's the editor and associate publisher of Business West. Here's George O'Brien. Okay, and welcome to Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local. I'm George O'Brien, the editor of Business West Magazine. Happy to have you along this morning. Uh, we've, we've got a great show for you today. We have Eric Lesser, uh, the state senator from Longmeadow, here with us today. Eric, how are you? Good. How are you, George? Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for putting aside a couple of minutes. You guys are working this summer. Um, I say that cynically. Uh, the legislature doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Um, um, but you are. You're working uh, into late July, and now you're working into August. Um uh, but there's a, there's a lot to do, and, and we're going to get to that in a couple of minutes. So um, let's start um, by talking about uh, this economic development legislation uh, you have co-written, and it was passed by the Senate, called the Endure Act. Uh, this is in direct response to the pandemic, I assume. Uh, talk a little bit about it and what, what's involved. Yeah, so so really, just, just sort of backing up for a second, George, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I think it's almost now goes without saying that uh, we really have two crises uh, that are really acting in parallel to each other here, both in Massachusetts, but certainly, frankly, nationally and around the world. We have, of course, a public health crisis, which was triggered by uh, coronavirus. And we have next to that a really very urgent economic crisis, which was initially caused by the virus, of course, but I do think will be with us for a long time, even, even after a vaccine, if a vaccine comes, and even after um, hopefully the virus uh, gets brought under control. And when you think about just some of the statistics, it's it's truly shocking. In Massachusetts, for example, we have a more than 17% unemployment rate. Uh, in March, before this started, we had a less than 3% unemployment rate. 40% uh, of the small businesses in Massachusetts are now saying that they're at real risk of permanently closing. Uh, since January, um, and nearly 50% of hourly workers at our small businesses have lost their jobs, uh, many likely permanently. Uh, so we have a, a crisis here that is really unmatched since the Great Depression, uh, let alone the, the Great Recession. And the, the Endure Act was really about, number one, addressing that uh, and speaking about it out in the open, uh, and also beginning to put a plan together uh, to both stabilize the situation economically and to get us back on our feet. Uh, and it really had three key components. First was uh, liquidity and stability for small businesses. Uh, in particular, our smallest businesses, uh, minority-owned businesses, immigrant-owned businesses, especially in gateway cities, um, that often were not able to access or couldn't access or didn't get enough uh, PPP loans uh, or PPP support from the federal government. So plugging those gaps are very important. Uh, and then, so, so kind of liquidity for small businesses is a big part of it. Uh, second was an acknowledgement that, 
you know, we do have some specific sectors and specific industries that have been hit much harder uh, than the economy as a whole. And certainly everyone has felt the impact of coronavirus. But for example, restaurants uh, have been particularly devastated. Restaurants tend to be more locally owned, family owned. They tend to employ people at lower ends of the income ladder that have less supports uh, if a layoff happens or if, um, you know, or if, uh, or if there's a closure. So we included, for example, aid program around restaurants. Uh, we also um, included, uh, you know, some significant sort of traditional stimulus efforts. So uh, efforts around stimulating more housing construction, more investments in public works uh, and infrastructure as a way to get more dollars into the economy quickly. Uh, and get more investments. And then the other, uh, uh, you know, final major piece was really thinking about aid and support for families, uh, because I think we have kind of a twin crisis here. We have uh, businesses that are illiquid or are facing hard times or are facing closures, and we have families uh, that are facing sudden loss of income, maybe a sick relative, maybe even someone in their family who's passed away from the virus. Uh, and we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to get aid to those families. So we include, for example, a student loan bill of rights. We have 800,000 people in Massachusetts that collectively owe over $40 billion in student loans. Uh, what happens in an era of mass unemployment to all that pending debt is really, frankly, a nightmare scenario and very scary. So getting uh, support to those families, making sure that we're avoiding predatory practices, predatory lending, things like that. Uh, are going to be very important. So there's a lot in the bill. Uh, and also, I would say that a big theme kind of running throughout uh, the legislation, the remarks I, I gave last two weeks ago presenting it was, well, everyone has been impacted by coronavirus. Again, not everyone has been impacted the same. Uh, and especially in our minority communities, uh, in our gateway cities, in our immigrant communities, in our hourly and wage worker communities, uh, there's been depression level impacts uh, that really can't be overstated. Just one more uh, statistic, then we can get into the broader conversation. Hipped workers, uh, so these are restaurant workers, hospitality workers. We had testimony presented to us that wages for tipped workers statewide have gone down 80% or more. Uh, so these are, uh, I mean, these are, these should shock people. Uh, these are shocking statistics. And, you know, frankly, I think we're only at the beginning of the economic impacts of, of the moment we're in. Are there dollar amounts attached to these provisions yet? Obviously, we're going to need a, a big bullet to yeah. get small businesses through this. You know, back in March, I think most people were thinking about Everyone I talked to who, who packed up and left their offices back in March were thinking it was going to be for a few weeks, and then they thought it was going to be for a few months. And now I think the reality has settled in that this isn't for a few weeks. It's not for a few months. It, it could well be into next year. Uh, PPP has helped a lot of these businesses out. Uh, I think it was a tremendous piece of legislation. I think it's really been a lifeline to a lot of business, but those monies are being exhausted, and we have to start thinking about the long term. People think about stimulus, they think about the federal government. They don't think about the state as much. What is this state in a position to do? Um, again, back to that original question, are there dollar amounts attached to this? Yeah. Yeah, so a uh, great question. So, you know, just first, and I know probably a lot of your listeners appreciate this, but states are different from the federal government. And probably the single biggest difference in a, in a, in a crisis like this is that states cannot run deficits. We don't, we don't have our own currency 
in Massachusetts. So you can't print money? Uh, we can't print money. <laughs> Sometimes some of my colleagues might disagree with that, but uh, the reality of it is, is the federal government prints the money. They run the interest rates. They run monetary policy. The Fed can run deficits. States cannot. States run really more like a business. We have obviously bonding and we have borrowing that we do, but it's it's off of a balance sheet that is based on our revenue. It's not it's not the same as a federal uh, as a federal policy. So with that in mind. Uh, we have a, a significant limitation in the sense that we have to really only spend what we collect and there's major uncertainties around what the state's revenue picture is going to look like. The Federal mm-hmm. Reserve of Boston, for example, uh, has estimated as much as a $6 billion hole uh, for FY21 alone, not to mention um, the out years. And I think this makes intuitive sense to people because you know, when you have high unemployment, there are less money collected in payroll taxes. When you have less people staying in hotels, there's less hotel occupancy taxes. Less people at restaurants means less uh, meals taxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we're facing kind of a, a two recessionary trends at the same time. Uh, a need to, uh, a very uncertain picture around the state's finances. At the same time, you actually need to surge resources uh, in order to plug the hole. So the proposal we put together is a little over $400 million in bond authorization. So we didn't think it was responsible. And I agree in a period of uncertainty like this, pulling money out of the operating line for the state at this, at this moment, uh, could actually have its own, uh, its own damage and consequences because we need that operating money for mass health, for education, for K-12 schools, for all the other important things the state is funding. So I think in this, in this scenario, especially with interest rates low and with the Federal Reserve buying state debt at the levels it is, which is keeping those interest rates low, it's appropriate to put this on bond items. So um, this is the, the proposal we put together is a little over $400 million in bond authorizations for right now. And I think we need to be prepared to do a lot more once this gets set up and this gets moving. Uh, because to just give you a sense of the whole, George, the state's um, uh, the state the state's GDP uh, is roughly a, a little under six hundred billion dollars a year. Best case scenario right now, Goldman Sachs is estimating about a five percent GDP contraction nationally. Massachusetts, so far, our contraction numbers have been significantly above the national average because we were hit harder by the virus, and a lot of our industries, healthcare, higher ed, are disproportionately being hit by COVID nineteen. Uh, so just assuming, for example, a 5% contraction, that's more than a $20 billion, almost a $30 billion hole uh, in output for the state. So PPP plugs some of that, the CARES Act plugs some of that, but the state is going to have to be prepared to plug the rest. Hmm. This is Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local and sponsored today by Munson Savings Bank. We're talking with State Senator Eric Lesser about the Endure Act and COVID-19 in general. You mentioned uh, the gateway cities. Uh, There are several out in this part of the state, and and they have been hard hit, particularly. What in this bill is designed specifically to address the concerns of these older manufacturing cities, a lot of them kind of reinventing themselves as as tourist centers, and we know how hard tourism has been hit by this. So uh, what is in there directed especially at those cities and towns? Yeah, so again, George, um, I think we can't really say enough how disparate the impacts have been. I mean, I mentioned 17%, over 17% unemployment statewide. In Springfield, it's approaching 25%. 
which is a depression level unemployment rate. Uh, it's similar, and that's not specific to Springfield, it's similar in all of our gateway cities. So we have uh, several items in this bill that I think are specifically targeted at our gateway cities, especially I, I had in mind, of course, my the two cities I represent, Springfield and Chicopee, our Western Mass cities, Pittsfield, Holyoke, um, uh, Westfield, Greenfield as well. So uh, a couple of things. So first, we included $50 million for our neighborhood stabilization initiative. Uh, which is a brand new initiative that we worked with the Gateway Cities Caucus on, uh, which would help uh, improve housing stock, uh, turn over and improve and rehabilitate uh, abandoned and blighted homes to get those homes back online onto the housing rolls and get people into uh, safe housing. We also included uh, a very significant line item uh, around revitalizing abandoned buildings, in particular mill buildings, uh, and again, trying to transition those into housing uh, and other needs. And we included a, a very significant micro business, um, excuse me, micro grant program to micro businesses. Because one of the pieces of feedback we had gotten from the Gateway Cities Caucus and from talking uh, to officials and community leaders in our Gateway Cities is there were a lot of businesses, again, that either couldn't access PPP, um, it wasn't a good fit for them, or were just too small. So these are businesses, you know, maybe under 500000 in revenue uh, that don't maybe need a lot. They need a grant of maybe twenty-five dollars to $75,000 to kind of keep the lights on, get them back on their feet after the shutdowns in March, April, and May. Uh, and it's really, frankly, um, a good investment because what we're trying to do is avoid temporary shocks from turning into permanent closures. So... You think about a, a neighborhood a neighborhood store uh, or a neighborhood convenience store or, or small grocery store, maybe uh, serving an, an immigrant community that largely was really hurt by the business closures because their customers tend to be service workers in industries that were hard hit. You see their business plummet, their revenues plummet. Getting them that grant is the difference between them permanently closing forever uh, and laying off everybody that works there. And by the way, not being able to pay rent to their landlord anymore uh, versus getting a grant that allows them to keep the lights on and, and kind of bridge them over to a, a period where there's more stability. So uh, this is a major program, about $50 million, uh, and it will help us, again, um, it will, it will help, the money will help get to thousands of businesses. And again, I would point out, I know you, you mentioned PPP, but there were significant limitations with that program. You know, one, the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, for example, testified to us that 95%, as high as 95% of Black-owned businesses in the state did not access or could not access PPP loans at all. Um, so there's still significant need, especially at our smallest businesses, um, to get uh, to get help. Hmm. You, there's a part of this legislation, uh, the Future of Work Commission, I saw that name and it really intrigued me because this is one of the issues that people are talking about, they're thinking a lot about. That was a headline on the most recent issue of our magazine that went out, The Future of Work. If the pandemic has, you know, beyond everything else that it's already done, it's got so many people working at home and working very well at home. And there are many people speculating that, that this isn't going to stay this way you know, long after the pandemic is over. Talk about what this means for cities with large office complexes and, and what it might mean for leveling the playing field between Western Mass and Eastern Mass. Yeah, so well, let's talk about, yeah, positive for a second, some, some optimism. Uh, I do think that if the, if the policy is done correctly, 
Uh, and if we think about this in a thoughtful way, in a proactive way, this has the potential to really be transformative for Western Mass, uh, because we are actually very well situated to be beneficiaries of the remote work phenomenon. We, you and I have talked about this before. We were talking about this before coronavirus. We've now seen a hypercharged trend. Uh, eventually, uh, of course, uh, the virus will subside. Uh, we'll either have a vaccine or, or it will you know, run its course, but we, we certainly do hope there'll be a vaccine and the containment measures the state is doing are going to, are going to have, uh, have a positive effect. But I do think a, a lasting legacy will be the fact that the nine to five workday, uh, is really going to, I think, be a vestige of the 20th century. Um, and you're going to have a lot of people, especially more knowledge oriented, uh, workers who, um, don't need to be in a traditional office. Uh, and Western Mass is potentially a major uh, a major beneficiary of that in the sense that we're in between two major employment markets. We're right in between New York and Boston. We have a very affordable um, uh, cost of living here compared to those markets. Uh, we certainly do have affordability issues within our communities, but compared to those markets, we're much more affordable. Uh, and we're a great place to live uh, with, with good schools and good institutions and, and a lot of big city amenities, uh, but a, a more kind of rural uh, and spread out uh, atmosphere. So I think uh, with the right policies, uh, including, for example, rail service, better broadband internet, uh, much faster, for example, municipal broadband, combined with the trends of remote working, you could really see a lot of investment come to Western Mass. And a lot of people uh, decide to base their careers here, which will be a big boon for us because it will bring big city salaries into in into Western Mass, which means a lot more people purchasing goods here, buying in our local restaurants, attending local cultural events, paying taxes here, uh, which will which will support all our other services. So, you know, again, you need the right uh, policies to really take advantage of that. So, the future of work commission is really more about um, thinking about where the state is going in the next year, two years, five years, even 10, 20 years and beginning to position and reorient policy towards that future and to shape that future in a way that's beneficial for all of us and all of our families. This is Business Talk, the podcast presented by Business West in partnership with Living Local, sponsored today by Munson Savings Bank. We're talking with State Senator Eric Lesser, and we were just talking about the future of work and how the pandemic uh, might actually help level the playing field between Western Mass and Eastern Mass. And that Brings us to another subject uh, that's been closely connected to to your name, and that is what most people call East-West Rail. Uh, I propose we call it Commonwealth Rail from now on. <laughs> um, I guess the question needs to be asked. I mean, uh, not to be flipped, do we, do we still need Commonwealth Rail if COVID-19 is going to allow people from this part of the state to continue to work, uh, live in this part of the state, and work for people in the eastern part of the state? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I would argue actually that it's more urgent than ever for a few reasons, George. First, um, people will need to see each other again. Uh, you know, when the, when the virus, uh, subsides and we, we are going to be optimistic, it will subside. There's multiple vaccines in development, uh, dozens and dozens. There's actually several companies in Massachusetts at the forefront of developing a vaccine. People will need to see each other again. I agree with you that, um, the kind of models of nine to five commuting are changing and they're changing pretty dramatically, but people will still need to see each other. There will still need to be face-to-face -face contact. And again, 
the rail has a transformational impact when coupled with all of these other changes. So, for example, you know, somebody living in Western Mass, you know, maybe works for a company based in New York City or in uh, Boston or in Beijing. Uh, they might be able to do their day-to-day job from their desk in Western Mass, but maybe a few times a month they have to go to Boston, they have to go to New York for meetings, for client engagements, for higher level kind of engagements that you wouldn't want to do by Zoom. It's not going to be that same nine-to-five commute that we remember from the 20th century, uh, but there will be still the need to get back and forth, and rail will provide that opportunity. So so first, I think um, it would be a mistake for us to assume that because a lot of interactions now are happening digitally, you don't need that face-to-face anymore. I, I think that would be a mistake. That's part one. But the other piece I would say is, look, the economy desperately needs this. At the height of the Great Depression, our country built 78,000 bridges. We built 800 airports at the height of the Great Depression. And at the time, uh, air, air travel was a very novel and, and kind of almost futuristic concept. So we need to be ambitious about where we're going, and the economy is going to need the investment and the stimulus. East-West Rail or West-East Rail or Commonwealth Rail, as Pacific West has referred to it, would inject hundreds of millions of dollars into our economy almost immediately from the construction alone. It would put thousands of people to work. And when it's done, it would help, uh, again, grow all of these trends that we've just been talking about in a positive direction. It would help link Western Mass to a global and a regional economy uh, that will provide a lot of jobs for us and provide a lot of investment. And the climate change impacts remain real and remain very important. Uh, it would take tens of thousands of cars off the road. It would be one of the single biggest reductions in greenhouse gas emissions that our state could ever undertake. Uh, you know, so for those three, you know, key reasons, the connectivity we're still going to need, the, um, the, the um, investment we're going to need to recover from the depression we're finding ourselves in, uh, and the environmental benefits, you know, make this project urgent and I think make this project, frankly, more important than ever. Mm-hmm. Well, you anticipated my next question perfectly because there's a lot of people who would say, well, now the state can't afford it in the middle of, of COVID, but you brought up the depression. That's when, you know, the infrastructure in this country, there were hundreds, thousands of projects that created millions of jobs and helped to take the country out of that depression. World War II ultimately brought it out, but those projects certainly helped. So maybe that might happen here too. Very quickly, well, give us an update on East-West Rail and um, when we might expect to see a vote on this. Yeah, so we included a, a provision for $50 million in our transportation bond bill that we passed, a few, debated and passed a few weeks ago. That bill is now in conference committee with the House, uh, but if included, that $50 million is really meant as a, as a capital authorization to begin some of the preparatory work for the project. Uh, NASDAQ has completed its uh, public hearing process uh, as well on their feasibility study, and they're preparing to put their final report out uh, in the fall. It was supposed to be over the summer. It got delayed because of coronavirus, but they have told us it's coming in the fall. Simultaneous to all of that, there's been a major effort federally. Uh, Congressman Neal uh, has worked to include provisions for East-West Rail in the $1.5 trillion federal infrastructure uh, program that uh, has already passed the U.S. House and is uh, kind of making its way through Washington. So 
I do think, George, the stars are aligning in certain respects for this project. We certainly don't want to get ahead of ourselves uh, in counting chickens before they hatch, but uh, it is and there has been, you know, some exciting momentum in the last several weeks and months. And I think looking into the fall uh, and beyond, the hope is, is that we're going to have a finished mascot study by the fall which is going to give us that blueprint for then the federal component, which is going to be money from Washington for the infrastructure. And depending on who's in the White House, who's in Congress, uh, I do think that there will be support for a major uh, infrastructure program in the coming months and coming years. Frankly, we need it because the economy is not going to be recovering uh, anytime soon. The V-shaped recovery is not happening. And I do think like the depression in the 1930s, the way we're going to get out of this is by investing in a lot of elements of our society, including infrastructure that have been uh, left on the wayside, frankly, for a long time. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, good luck with the Endure Act and, and good luck with the East-West slash Commonwealth Rail. Thank you. This has been Business Talk, a podcast brought to you by Business West and Living Local. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.